0: The ladies who had come on Friday and had decorated our church so lovely with these Christmas decorations. I love Christmas decor and uh, adding a nice little touch of the season to our sanctuary and even out in the foyer, I like that uh, banner that had Silent Night on it. So thank you for doing that for us. And as we come into this passage, as we continue our series in First Timothy, I wanted to remind you once again of our theme or the main focus of the book. As Paul had written to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write these things to you so that if I delay in coming to you, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So we are learning as a church together, as we go through 1 Timothy, what roles we are expected to fill in the household of God, in the service of his church, which again is said to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, holding up the truth and even defending it from those who would try to malign it. So we keep those things in mind, especially as we jump into these instructions that we're going to find here at the start of chapter 2. So this is 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 7, and again out of the English Standard Version. Please stand in honor of the word of the king. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 the Apostle Paul, writing to his servant Timothy in Ephesus, hear the word of the Lord. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into this passage today, I pray that we would be led and guided by your Spirit to understand, praying for all people, and the desire that God our Father has that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And we're given even the reason why we are to do this, for Christ is our mediator between God and man who has paid our ransom, that we might be reconciled to God. And not only have we been reconciled, but God even continues to speak favorably on our behalf, Christ to the Father, saying, this is the one for whom I have died. This is the one who belongs to me, who has received an inheritance in my kingdom. And so as Christ has spoken on our behalf before the Father. May we be diligent to lift up prayers for one another before Christ our King. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You'll notice that the first word in this particular chapter is the word first. Now, we have been in this series for a month now, for four Sundays, we've been in First Timothy and have taken those four Sundays to get through chapter 1. As we come in now to chapter 2, Paul says, first of all, well, what have we been doing for the last four Sundays if Paul is now getting to the first point? Well, in the first chapter, he comes into these instructions that he is giving Timothy by first telling him to not let any teacher teach another doctrine But that which flows from the sound words of our Lord Christ and those things that pertain to godliness. The gospel and that which produces godliness in those who believe it and follow it. So don't let anyone else teach anything otherwise. The whole first chapter was built on that theme. We concluded last week with Paul even giving examples of false teachers that had to be put out of the church because they were not teaching sound doctrine. Consider again chapter 1 verse 20, among whom, Paul says, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it's almost as if Paul has given before Timothy this first order of business. Preach the gospel. Preach sound doctrine. And don't let anyone teach anything otherwise. There are men who have tried to teach something else, and I've even had to put them out of the church. Paul bringing to Timothy's attention their names, that he would even know who they were there in Ephesus. Hymenaeus and Alexander had to be put out because they were blaspheming God. And as I explained that last week, it was as if to attribute God with wrong, hence blaspheming, and why Hymenaeus and Alexander had to be removed. So once this This foundation has been laid. Once this has been accomplished, we're teaching sound doctrine. We're removing those who are teaching otherwise. And don't let anyone teach anything else but the gospel and that which pertains to godliness. Now Paul is getting to those instructions where in light of the gospel, here's how we are to behave and act in the household of God. So when we read, first of all, then, I urge... What we're getting are the first instructions for the people in the church. And here's the first thing that Paul tells us to do. Pray. The first instruction. In light of the sound doctrine that we believe in and follow, what should be our first order of business? To pray. That's the first instruction that he gives. And you'll notice... That he starts here with prayer, urging prayer in chapter 2, verse 1, and then in verse 8, which is mentioned in the passage here. It says 2, 1, 3, and I'm actually not going to get to 8 today. We'll get to 8 next week, but I will tease it out a little bit. You'll notice that in first, verse 8, Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should what? Pray. Pray. So we have this instruction to pray, and then when we get to instructions for men and instructions for women, the very first of those instructions is for the men to set the standard and the example for behavior in the church by praying. So first of all, then, I urge for prayer, Paul says. And how our passage here today, verses 1 through 7, how this breaks down, is that we see this call for prayer in verses 1 through 4, And then part two is the reason why in verses 5 through 7. We are following after our mediator who is mediating for us before God the Father. And this really brings us to the focus of this passage. And that is in verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Because Christ mediates for us. So we know that we have access to God, and we can come to him in prayer, and not only praying for ourselves, but praying on behalf of others. So this is the focus of the passage, and therefore the title of my message today, that Christ Jesus is our mediator. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And when we get to that second part, where Paul gives the reason why in verses 5 to 7, we can break that even into two parts. Paul says, this is the testimony, verses 5 through 6. And then I'm the one who preaches that testimony in verse 7. And in light of these things, the call to, pr- uh, the, the call to prayer and the reason why for Christ, our mediator, intercedes for us before the Father, we will find some applications in this as well, which I'll give at the very end. So first of all, let's come into part one, verses one through four, where Paul gives this call to prayer, this imperative to pray, even as he instructs, he instructs the church in these things. First of all, then I urge that supplications, that prayers, that intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, there's really not anything mystical about what Paul says regarding prayer here. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, each of these words are just saying we are to engage in different kinds of prayer. Whatever would behoove us to come before God and seek his counsel and ask for his help and submit ourselves before him, whatever language that would take on, May we be in the regular practice of that. So he gives different kinds of prayer here. Supplications, first of all, is the first word. A supplication is simply a wanting or an asking. That we would go before God and we would simply ask of him. As James says in James chapter 1, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. And that's very simply a supplication, that we would, go to, we would go before God and we would ask for his help. It is very prideful, in fact, to not ask of God for his help. If we think that we can do it on our own and I don't need to ask of God, then we are relying too much on ourselves and not humbling ourselves before Christ. I even dealt with this a little bit this morning. Even as I was in my preparation for preaching today, I was wandering this aisle right here, thinking of various points that I was going to bring up in the sermon, running through uh, uh, different things that I was going to say, and it came upon me that I had not yet taken time to pray. And I'm thinking of myself and my own ability to deliver a message and the oratory skills that I've built up over the years And thinking too much of myself and not humbling myself before God. And saying, God, I need your help to deliver this message today. That it would not be me that stands before this church and is impressed by what abilities I may have. But in fact, that I would get out of the way and they see not me but Christ through the words that I'm going to preach. So that I might humble myself and, and in the words of John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he may increase. And that in humbling myself before I come to preach this word. I read this from Burt Parsons this morning. Burt Parsons is, the, uh, is an understudy of R.C. Sproul and the pastor at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. Parsons said this, When someone asks if you believe you're going to heaven, saying, I hope so, isn't humble. It's arrogantly believing your salvation rests on your works. But saying, yes, I'm certain, isn't arrogant. It's humble assurance, believing that your salvation is resting on Christ's work. And prayer is one of those acts that we do in humility that brings us before God to say, I cannot work this out on my own. I am completely in submission to you and your power and your strength to work all things out together for my good and ultimately for your glory. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read, to cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Now, that's a common verse. We've probably written it down on sticky notes, put it in a mirror, or maybe you you even have it in your happy verse calendar or something like that. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The verse immediately before that is, humble yourselves before God. And if you don't cast your cares upon him because he cares for you, then you're saying, in a sense, I don't need God's help. I've got this on my own. But the very fact that we come before God and we present supplications, that we ask of him is to, is to humble ourselves before God and ask for his help knowing that I am without the strength, without the power to sustain myself or do any of this on my own. I need the Lord. And so the very first word for prayer that Paul presents here is supplication, that we would simply come before God and we would ask. The next word is prayers. And what is prayer? When we even are talking about praying to God, what are we saying? What is prayer? prayer is very simple there's a very simple definition for this it's talking to god when you pray you talk to god so first of all we ask of god and then next we talk to god we would as if we would have a conversation with anyone else a lot of times when we pray we drop a lot of uh, a lot of fathers or lords in our in our prayer we fill up the space with very lofty language and uh, and theological words But just think of the way that you pray as very simply talking to God, as you would talk to anyone. As it is said of Moses that when he talked to God, he talked with him as though one man talks to another face to face. That was describing Moses' conversations with God. And so as we have seen this of the prophets of old, may we speak with God the same way, as you would speak with anyone face to face. I know that it is difficult to think of speaking to someone that you can't see in that way, but we talk with one another on the phone and we can't see them. You text one another. I I think we've gotten more in line with texting than we have uh, with calling one another on the phone. Have you ever been texting with somebody and then in the middle of that texting conversation, they start trying to call you? You're looking at going, oh, why are you doing that? (laughs) Let's just keep the text conversation going on here. But you're still, whether you're texting somebody you can't see or you're talking to someone on the phone, you can't see them either. And it's the same with God. You can speak with the Lord, though you cannot see him, the same way that you would talk to anyone. If it is easier for you to write things down, then let that be meditation and prayer that you have before God. We have written prayers in the Bible. There were, of course, prayers that Jesus prayed that have been written down for us. But just think of the Psalms. The Psalms are not only songs, but they're prayers. They are written prayers unto the Lord, so you can write your prayers as well. Some of the uh, most meaningful writings that I have read from the Puritans or the Reformers or otherwise have been the prayers that they wrote down. And so it's great to have a prayer journal, and you can do that as well, writing things down that you would say unto the Lord. Prayer is very simply talking to God. The next kind of prayer that we have mentioned there is intercession. And intercession is to appeal on someone else's behalf. So praying for what you know are others' needs. You have friends that are no doubt in need, brothers and sisters in the Lord that are perhaps struggling, and you can lift up their requests on their behalf before God, interceding for the case of someone else. And it doesn't just have to be those things that are, are sad or struggles or trials that we may go through, although that, that brings us to God in a hurry, or at least it should. It can also be those praises that you have on behalf of others. My family and I just very recently were praying for a friend of mine whose daughter is a very young girl, the, the same age as my uh, nine- and six-year-olds, and uh, it was the, the, the parents were afraid that she may have cancer. So it was a very difficult time for the family as they were still waiting for tests to come back and worried about what may happen. And the little girl was even handling it very, very well as she was waiting for those requests to come back. But we prayed for her. We surely prayed that God would grant healing to this family. And and if it be his will that she would contract cancer, that she would fight it with grace and with trust in God as her strength. But it turned out as the test came back, she didn't have cancer. And it was, a, it was a time of joy for the family. So I brought that back to my kids and said, you know, this thing that we've been praying for, that she would not have cancer, guess what? She doesn't have cancer. So now let's pray to God on her behalf again, but this time praising the Lord that she is well. And so even when we intercede on behalf of others, it not just be those things that we pray for that are troubling, but even we would praise God on behalf of someone else. And so Paul brings to this next one, thanksgiving. So we have supplications, we have prayers, we have intercessions, and next we have thanksgivings. And thanksgivings, of course, very simply praises. You know what thanksgivings are without me having to tell you. So why aren't you going to God to give him thanks? you know what the word means? You know that we're instructed to give thanks. And may our thanksgiving flow from knowing what God has done for us. I mean, the very first attitude that we should have when we come before God is thankfulness because we know that Christ Jesus died for us. As we read last week in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as I concluded last week, he came to save me, he came to save you. So it's on that very basis that we go before God with an attitude of thanksgiving. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, to be anxious for nothing, the Lord is at hand. But in all things, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. Even when you are hurting and struggling and going through trials and wondering how you could be sustained in the midst of this, yet you can come before God with a thankful heart. As David did in Psalm 13, he begins that psalm by saying, How long, O Lord, are you going to forget me forever? And this is David with whom God made a covenant and said, I'm going to establish on your throne my kingdom forever. And yet at the end of that psalm, though David wonders where God is in the midst of his trial, he says, yet I will hope in God for he has dealt bountifully with me. He knows that God is given to him abundantly. And so even in this trial, I will give thanks for his loving kindness. So our our general disposition before God should be with thanksgiving. It's okay to make your complaints known to God. That's fine. As long as you are there with an attitude of thankfulness knowing that God is going to resolve this. All things are in his hand. He is going to deliver me from this trial even though I may not see the end of it in the moment that I am asking for his help So we come to God with supplications, asking of God. We come to him with prayers, talking to God. We come with intercessions, praying on behalf of others. And we come with thanksgivings, an attitude of praise and thankfulness before God. And notice that Paul says that these things would be made for all people. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, And the first of these all people that he mentions, verse 2, are kings and all who are in high positions. Now, that's a very interesting thing, that Paul says that these kinds of prayers should be made for all people, but he doesn't say, for the brothers and sisters of the Lord that are in your church, that's who you pray for first. At least that's not the first example that he gives. Not that it's wrong that you can pray for one another. Certainly you should. You can begin by praying for yourselves. When we get together for family prayer, we are often praying for the needs that are within our own family first. There's nothing wrong with that. But why does Paul give as the first example for kings and all who are in high positions? And he gives the reason why in the very next line. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Now, that's right in the middle of a sentence, but let me stop there for now. Paul is actually calling back to some language that God gave to the Israelites when they were being sent into exile to the Babylonians. Turn with me to Jeremiah 29. Keep your finger here in 1 Timothy 1, but let's go for a moment to 1 Timothy. Or, sorry, yeah, 1st first, first Jeremiah 29. <laughs> Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, what verse do you know from Jeremiah 29? <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. The plan to prosper and not harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, over, uh, during the entire course of my time as a pastor... I regularly check various websites that have Bible verse searches. And I want to see like what are, most, what are the most searched Bible verses on these websites. Jeremiah 29, 11, almost every year shows up somewhere in the top five. This is one of those verses people just love, but don't understand the context of it. Because people will take that out of context and they will make it their prosperity verse. And whatever plans I have for me must be the plans that God has for me. That's usually the way that we read ourselves into that passage. But there's something more deep that's going on here. We need to know the context, the, who the author is and who he's writing to, that we may know this verse rightly. But there's other things that are being said here in Jeremiah 29 that Paul is actually borrowing from the, the very same address God gives to his people Israel and brings it into 1 Timothy chapter 2 in the instructions that he gives to the church. So as we're here in Jeremiah 29, let me give you some backstory, jumping back to chapter 28. So the Babylonians have come in, they have sacked Jerusalem, and the Jews have been exiled to Babylon. Now the people are afraid and concerned that this is it. We have disobeyed God, we've worshipped false gods, and now he's bringing judgment against us. What hope do we have? Jeremiah has even been given this prophecy from God that the people would be enslaved in such ways. And so Jeremiah is walking around with a yoke on his shoulders. He's got this wooden yoke, just like a yoke would be put on cattle to drive them in fields. So Jeremiah is wearing this yoke to symbolize the slavery and the exile that the the Israelites would be in. Well, this prophet named Hananiah comes along. And Hananiah says, God has given me a vision that this exile, it's only going to last two years. And then God is going to redeem us. He's going to restore us to this land. We're going to be as prosperous as we've ever been. And even Jeremiah rejoices over this prophecy. If this comes to pass, then it is from God and it is good. And Hananiah walks up to Jeremiah and breaks that yoke off of him to symbolize that our exile will come to an end very soon. Well, God comes to Jeremiah and he says, I didn't tell this guy that thing. And because he broke the yoke from you, I'm going to place a yoke of iron on you that's going to last 70 years. That's how long you're going to be in exile. And he tells Jeremiah to draft a letter. And this letter is sent to the people of Israel and the letter says the following. We have it here in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4. So look with me in Jeremiah 29:4. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what God says for them to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens And eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. When it... Sorry, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So who does God tell the Jews to pray for? Pray for the city that you're being exiled to. Another way that we may understand this, pray for kings. And those who are in high positions, pray that they will have welfare. Because if everything goes well for them, it will go well for you. If everything goes bad for this kingdom, guess what? It'll also go bad for you. And so though God has sent them into exile, he basically tells them, continue to live your lives. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, have families, and continue to pray. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the city that I am sending you into For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, the next part is very interesting. Verses 8 through 9, Paul then has, or Paul, yeah, Jeremiah then has a word for those false teachers who had led Israel astray, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. In verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise. And bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So consider again verse 11... Is this verse being said in a time of prosperity and that all your hopes and dreams are going to come true? No, in fact, they're in a very terrible situation. But God assuring them, I'm not bringing you into exile to destroy you. In fact, I still have a plan to prosper you. But bringing them back to that land and seeing that prosperity that God offers here really would not come to fulfillment for another 150 years. So God is promising something that this generation would not see. Even beyond the promise of bringing them back to the land and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and building the temple again and all these other things, what is the ultimate plan that God is going to fulfill through the Jewish people? But the coming of a Savior. And so he is not going to wipe them out because God is faithful to himself and his promises that he will accomplish what he intended to accomplish all along, all along through this people that a Savior would come who would not just be the Savior of the Jewish people, but even a Savior unto the Gentiles. So now with these things in mind, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and these instructions that Paul gives. By the way, uh, Paul has a lot of Jeremiah's character in the things that he writes and says. There are certain prophets that you can see duplicated in the New Testament writers. Paul mimics a lot of Jeremiah's writing style and even the characteristics of his personality. For John, it was Ezekiel. And for Peter, Moses. So you can see in some of those prophets, uh, those very things have become examples even unto the apostles who write to the churches. So here, Paul says that we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Same sort of concept we just read in Jeremiah 29. When it goes well with them, it will go well with you. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Because, my friends, when this nation still believes in God we trust, it'll go well for us, right? The more pagan, the more secular you see this nation becoming, the less well it's going for us, correct? So if we pray for kings and those who are in high positions that they would seek the Lord, then we also come to understand that we, in that sort of environment, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and it's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. We live in a social media culture where it seems like what we should be doing is drawing a whole lot of attention to ourselves. And if nobody's watching me on Facebook and Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now, Twix, (laughs) TikTok, YouTube, whatever else, if nobody's paying attention to me, then I'm not accomplishing something. So we'll do whatever outlandish things that we need to do just to earn people's attention. Probably not making any money off of it even. It's just the more attention that I can get, the better I feel like I find my place in this culture and in this world but the scriptures actually tell us the opposite in first Thessalonians Paul said or to the Thessalonians make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to be godly and dignified in every way to work with your hands and mind your own business just as we told you so the instruction that we have to the churches is really that you would mind your own business that you would work that you would not try to call a whole lot of attention to yourselves But what testimonies that we do give before a watching world should point to our Savior? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that you are a light to the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And being a light of the world means that we would demonstrate our righteousness before men so that they would give glory to our Father in heaven. We are being a light to the world that points to Christ. And it says here in verse 3 that it is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior that we would live and behave in such a way. Verse 4, for God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this is a hugely controversial passage that many like to say that God desires all people to be saved so everyone therefore has free will and one can decide to follow God or refuse God. This becomes one of those free will passages. But I think when we try to take the verse to mean that, or even if we pull it into our camp, whatever camp you're in, you might be Arminian, you might be Calvinist, you try to pull this verse into your camp and try to make it mean something toward your soteriology, I think you lose the context of exactly what Paul is saying here. As we understand what is being said with regards to God desiring all people to be saved. Matthew Poole puts it this way, we must understand this verse with respect to his decretive will, uh, with, with res- not with respect to his decretive will, I'm sorry, but his complacential will. That's a big word, but what does he mean by that? That is that the repentance and life of a sinner is very pleasing to his holiness and mercy. So really the explanation, the understanding of God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth is exactly what we read earlier in verses 2 and 3. To lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, so pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ-likeness, and dignified in every way. Holding yourself as somebody who is worthy of honor. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, God would desire that everyone would live this way. And it's because God desires that everyone that lives this way that everybody who does not pursue godliness is therefore going to be judged because they did not pursue godliness. So God's desire is that everyone would live in such a way. Just as Paul declared to the Greeks at Athens at the Areopagus when he said that times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And it's that same sort of declaration that's being said here. God would desire that all people repent and live in godliness. This is not to say that everyone will repent and live in godliness, nor is it saying anything of the sort that everybody has free will and they can choose to follow God or not. But God desires that all people be saved, believe the gospel, and would come to a knowledge of the truth. And this word all, desiring all people to be saved, that word all actually comes up here five times in these seven verses. I don't know if you've noticed that. You may have heard it said that all means all and that's all all means. Have you ever heard that said before? That is false. Rather, all always has a context. Mm-hmm. And here we have seen the word all applied as all kinds. And this even goes, you, you can see this in chapter 6 when we get to verse 10, where it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Not all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. That's not what that verse says. But that the love of money is the root of all kinds of of evils. And so all kinds could be rightly applied here, especially when we've just read that we should be praying for kings and all who are in high positions. All kinds of people in all kinds of positions. That's what's being said. And God desiring all kinds of people to be saved, Jew or Gentile from this nation or that nation, speaking this language or that language, men or women, because that's the context that we're coming into as we continue in these instructions in chapter two. Instructions God has for men, instructions God has for women. There's not a plan of salvation for men and a plan of salvation for women. There is one way of salvation for all people and that is through Christ. And so Paul directs Timothy to that truth in verse five, for there is one God And there is one mediator between God and men. So, as we've just read here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we've read that call to prayer. And then, as we jump into verses 5 through 7, Paul gives the reason why. We are instructed in this way in light of the fact that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, there's that word again, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In light of the truth of the gospel, then we follow along with this instruction that we would pray, that we would ask, that we would talk to God, that we would intercede for others, that we would give thanksgivings on behalf of ourselves and other people. Because there is only one way of salvation for mankind. There is only one way to be made right with God. And that is through the man, Christ Jesus. Now this term, mediator, what does this mean? There is one mediator between God and men. A mediator is one who effects reconciliation or settlement between parties. That's an important understanding. In Hebrews 9:15 we read therefore he Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Christ mediates a covenant between us and God so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we have this new covenant that has been inaugurated by Christ making peace between God and man. And you get in that an understanding of what a mediator is, one who affects reconciliation or settlement between parties. I love that word reconciliation because in the definition of that word reconciliation, there are undertones of the gospel. To be reconciled means to accept that which was not previously desired. To be reconciled means to accept that which was not previously desired. So when we've been reconciled to God, means that previously he did not desire us, and we did not desire God. Now, hang on, how did God not desire us since what we just read here is that he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? We were sinful wretches, rebellious against God, lawbreakers who were worthy of his judgment and wrath. As we read in John 3, 36, he who has the son has life. He who does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We are under that wrath because of our sinful rebellion against God. And that's what we deserve is judgment. In that state, God does not desire us. Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk says, Your eyes are so holy you cannot even look upon the sins that are committed. So God does not desire us in that state place when we are in that condition, but he still loves us to send a son to reconcile us and make us worthy of his love and affection. Now, before that happens, even we do not desire God. As said in Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12, together we have become worthless. There is no one who seeks for God. In our sinfulness, in our rebellion against God, we are not searching for God. It takes the the regeneration of the Holy Spirit on our hearts to turn us from a person that desires to rebel against God to now a person who desires to worship God. And because of that work that has happened, when we hear the gospel, we believe it, we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are reconciled to God, where previously we did not desire God, now we do, and a reconciliation has taken place, reconciled on both ends. God did not desire us, Christ made us worthy and righteous in his presence, clothed in his righteousness, the Father looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his Son, And he desires us and draws us to himself, and we are adopted as sons and daughters, but not before being clothed in Christ's righteousness. So we are reconciled to God. And we are reconciled in the sense that we did not desire God, but now our hearts have been transformed, our minds have been renewed, we are born again and desiring to seek God and worship him and follow Jesus. And in this, we have been reconciled. And Christ accomplishes all of this for us on our behalf as our mediator. There is one access to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Amen. It is not through our works. It is not through religion. It is not through tradition. It is not through any other philosophy, ideology, or, or, or God or saint. We get through to God through Christ and only him. And this being said in the context of our relationship with God, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And again, a ransom for all kinds. If it was for every single person on earth, then it would contradict the words that Christ himself said in Mark ten forty-five: for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, not every single person on earth. For only those who are in Christ Jesus have been ransomed and reconciled unto God. Now this verse, there is one mediator between God and men. We often use this passage to respond to the Roman Catholics or the Greek Orthodox who would believe that you can pray to a dead saint or an angel or otherwise and that this would be our access to God. And you can ask that saint or Mary or someone else to pray to God on your behalf. And of course we know that is not true because no other saint can bring our requests to god it is christ who is only our access to god we know that because of what this verse says we can come to god no other way but through christ our savior but furthermore even taking that out of the occasion uh, out of the equation that we cannot get to god through any other way but through jesus christ i just wonder why would anyone waste their time praying to mary or a saint or anyone else when you have direct access to God. You can talk to the creator of the universe. You can do it right now. You don't have to go through anybody else. You don't have to talk to your priest or anyone. You can talk to God right now. Now we say that and we might dog on the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. But if you know that you can talk to the creator of the universe right now. Why don't you? I mean, we can look at those guys and those religions. What are they doing? What are they thinking? Don't they know their Bibles? But you do it. You know it. And you don't go to God. And like I said, it's a weakness in my own flesh that I I constantly have to crucify and remind myself that I need to humble myself before the Lord today. I have cares that I need to take before God. And we need to humble ourselves and know that Christ is our mediator. 1 John 2.1 puts it this way. I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that word advocate because advocate means that he is speaking favorably of us before the Father. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who goes before the Father on our behalf and says, this one's still mine. You've certainly heard this illustration before, but I give it again by way of a reminder to encourage you and edify you, saints. It's as if we stand before God in a courtroom having to answer for all of our transgressions and the Father is standing there at the bench reading the list of sins That have been presented to him. Here are the ways that this man, this woman has broken the law of God. And the attorney stands up, our lawyer stands up and says, Dad, can I approach the bench? Our lawyer is the son of the judge. And he goes up before the judge and says, Judge, I've paid his ransom, I've paid her ransom. He or she belongs to me. They're mine. Can they be set free? And the Father grants us pardon because of what the Son has done on our behalf, dying for our sins, shedding his righteous blood on the cross for us. He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, Paul says. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the gentiles in faith and truth. Now that's a that's an interesting statement for Paul to make. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Well, yeah, I mean you're an apostle. If you if you were lying, if you weren't telling the truth, that would be a big problem. But really think of this in contrast with what we just read in chapter 1. Who were Hymenaeus and Alexander? Liars. And they were not telling the truth. And so put the emphasis on the I when Paul says this. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am not lying. I am telling the truth. These other men, these other false teachers that you should not be letting teach any other doctrine. They're liars. They're deceivers. They lead people to hell. They do not have people's best intentions in mind. Remember that Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul is saying this here, I am telling you the truth, I am not lying to say we truly care for these people. But the liars and the deceivers are only out for themselves. As Christ gave himself for us, so we must be willing to give of ourselves for the sake of others. Now we're at 10 till the top of the hour. I'm out of time. But very quickly to give you three applications here as we wrap this up. Three applications. Number one, pray. Number two, profess. Number three, preach. Now let me explain those three. How how do we apply what it is that we've read today? Well, very simply, we see the imperative right at the very beginning, pray. I urge then to pray. So we hear the charge to pray, therefore we must pray. My friends, Jesus prayed. Jesus is God, and he prayed. If it behooved the Son of God to pray, then how much more should we pray? Secondly, profess. And really, I just picked this word because it fit my alliteration, that all these would start with "pr." But profess, what I mean by that, is to confess before God. That you would come before God and that you would lay down your cares. You would express your heart. You would say to him what is on your mind and confessing your sins before God. Saying, God, here's what I have done wrong. Name your sins. Here's how I have sinned against you. Forgive me. Cleanse me and uh, uh, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, as David prayed in Psalm 51. Created me a clean heart, O God. Third application, preach. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is called to be a preacher or a pastor, but preach meaning that you would confess these things to others, that you would share it with your brothers and sisters in the Lord, that they may be encouraged and edified in those times that we need encouragement And in all times, we need to be built up. But that you would also preach this to those who don't know, that the lost may be found, that those who are still enslaved to their sins would be ransomed and set free by faith in Jesus Christ. For as we have been told here, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's very interesting that Paul refers to him as the man Christ Jesus. This is God incarnate, God who came in human flesh, God who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who is seated at the right hand of God. And you know what, my friends, as he is seated there at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, mediating on our behalf, as our advocate before the Father, he's still fully God and fully man. He didn't stop his human form when he went to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. For in order to be reconciled, in order to bridge that gap between God and man because of our sin, it took the God-man to bridge it. The perfect man, God himself, who brings us back into relationship with God. That we may know as declared and as we understand from this passage, that there is one God and there is one mediator, And he is Jesus Christ. As we come to this table this morning, we remember the sacrifice of our God for us. We remember that Jesus lived a righteous life. That he died a righteous sacrifice. That he rose again from the dead. And he went back to the Father where he reigns on high now. There is the promise of judgment that is coming when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. But all who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. As we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins, let us take a moment now to pray in quiet as those who are going to serve the table come forward. Confess your sins before God as we prepare our hearts. Let's pray.